Good morning. Our scripture for today comes from Acts chapter 4, 32 through 511. And it says, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. Amen. <clears throat> that story sounds so kind when Lindsay reads it. Someone drops dead in the presence of God, and I'll see if I can scare you a little bit more. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and keep them open to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. We are so thankful you're joining us. If you're joining us for the first time, not every week do we talk about someone falling dead in the presence of God, but... Every week, we're making our way through the story of the book of Acts, which we've seen over the course of the first few weeks, is the story of God building his church. Luke, the historian, wrote a gospel, which we call Luke, about who Jesus was, his life, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And then he wrote a sequel, the book of Acts, to talk about the growth and expansion of the kingdom of God through the launching of the local church. And so we are picking up in Acts chapter 4, we're only a few weeks into this study, but so much has already taken place. The story of Acts in the first four chapters, it showed us that Jesus, after his death and resurrection, he gathered his closest friends and his followers, those who were faithful. He gathered them together and he spent 40 days with them, recapping everything he taught them during their ministry, adding clarification, helping it make sense, talking about the things of the kingdom of God. And then after the 40 days, Jesus ascended back to the Father's right hand to heaven. And when Jesus ascended to the Father's right hand, he poured out his Holy Spirit on his people. And we saw that when God poured out his Holy Spirit, the people came to life. The church at the time was about 120 people. They're gathered in a borrowed space in an upper room in the city of Jerusalem. And the Holy Spirit was poured out. I went out of the upper room. They began preaching the good news of the kingdom of God in three 
thousand people on the very first Sunday gave their life to Jesus. They turned their life over to him. They were baptized. They received the power of the Holy Spirit. They received the forgiveness of their sins. And the church was born. The church devoted themselves instantaneously to the things that mattered most. The apostles' teaching, studying the Bible, the fellowship, spending time together in a community of believers, of like-minded people on a similar mission, uh, the breaking of bread, which is communion, and prayer. They gather together, they devote themselves, the apostles teaching, the fellowship, breaking of bread in prayer. Miracles were being performed. The apostles continued preaching. And to this point, everything in the growth of the church, the growth trajectory of the church was up and to the right. It was such an exciting time. The Holy Spirit poured out, the church beginning to grow and expand, people putting their faith in Jesus day in and day out, being added to their number. The religious leaders, the, the traditional religious leaders in the Jewish faith, they tried to slow the spread of the church in chapter 4, but even there it says... Uh, against persecution, the church continued to grow in 5,000 men, and it grew to about 5,000 men. So I was trying to do the math this week. Just for context, the church is about 5,000 men. And so I don't know what we base this on, but I looked at our church. And if we use the, the ratio of men to women at our church, if there were 5,000 men, there must have been 15, 20, 30,000 people. Because we have like six girls at this church for every single guy. The college girls remind me every single week. There are six of us for every eligible guy, and that's being generous. In all seriousness, the church was probably 15, 20, 25,000 people strong as we pick it up in Acts chapter 4. And as Lindsay read, Acts chapter 4, verse 32 says, Now the full number, okay, that's a lot of people. We don't know. But somewhere between 5,000 men, their wives, their children, about 30,000 people, give or take, I don't know, 5,000. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. No one said that any of his things belonged to him were his own. But they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And I just love this line, in great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them. They brought the proceeds of what was sold. They laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as he had need. What an incredible description of life in the early church. It's in these moments that I sit and I study this text week in and week out, this text that I was fortunate to grow up with because I was raised in a great church. I sit back and I just thank God that he saw fit through the faithfulness of men and women and the empowering of his Holy Spirit to preserve for us this description of what life was like in the early church because it was Holy Spirit inspired, but this is a description of life in the early church. And I don't know what the greater miracle is, that there was 15, 20, 30,000 people gathered together and they were unified in purpose and mission. They were all unified. That seems like a miracle. Or maybe the greater miracle was that they were all extravagantly generous. They were giving to everyone as he had need. So there were these two incredible things taking place, empowered by the Holy Spirit. The church, 15, 20,000 people gathered together, unified around the person and the work of Jesus, preaching the good news of the kingdom of God, experiencing Jesus for themselves. And as they experienced the goodness and the great grace of God upon them, they just gave and they gave generously. They were all in. They not only gave their life to Jesus, but they gave their resources to advance the name, the reign, and the fame of Jesus. It was extravagant generosity. They got it performed immeasurably more in their midst, and they went above and beyond. The early church began looking around for things that they had. What can we sell so that we can give so the name of God can continue to go forth, so that other people can experience Jesus the way we have experienced Jesus? And I say that it was generous because they went well above and beyond what was expected 
or instructed. Because here's a, like another history note, a footnote in history. At this time, the early church was full of Jewish converts to Christianity. In fact, everybody in the church at this point grew up Jewish. Did any of you don't have to raise your hand, grew up in a traditional church, maybe a like Presbyterian or Catholic or Methodist, and like, you know, they, they kind of fit you in that box, but you, you adopted the traditions that were passed on to you by the church that raised you. The Jewish people, they grew up with very strict religious traditions. Some of them might have been Jew by uh, name only, but nonetheless, they certainly would have been practicing the things that were prescribed in the Old Testament, like bringing the full tithe, the first 10% of their income into the temple so that it would be put to work for the the working of the temple. It was taught all throughout the Old Testament. It was affirmed by Jesus. It was how they were raised. And so these early converts to Christianity, they would have been bringing the full tithe, the first 10% of their income to the church so the work of God could continue to go forth. But they didn't stop there. Now, one of the things I realized is that some, this is still true today, right? Some denominations, some traditions, there's so many different traditions in the church. We are non-denominational. We, we, uh, we don't have a, a hierarchy somewhere that, that tells us what to teach and what to preach. We just stick to the scripture. But so much of the church has traditions. And some of those traditions just do a better job than others, certainly do a better job than us, teaching people about tithing. For example, my, great, or my grandmother uh, was Presbyterian, and she thought that if she didn't give, she would go to hell. Now, I can't find that in the Bible, but I would love to teach that. So I'm going to teach that as my grandma's word, not God's word. If you want to adopt it, go ahead. The offering plate is in the back. But I was talking to someone, I kid you not, I was talking to someone before we launched Eastside three or four years ago, and I was trying to raise money to launch the church because believe it or not, it takes a tremendous amount of money to do this week in and week out, to run the church, to make disciples, to reach people, to put out signs, to all kinds of things. And so I went from church to church. Anybody I could find that would, uh, would potentially be a donor to Eastside, I was at this church and a part of uh, the state of Florida that's just full of old people. Because no offense, I love old people, but let's just be honest, old people have more money than young people, right? And so I was at this church full of, I was talking to this pastor, and I was telling him about the vision that God has called us to plant the church that will plant a family of independent but interconnected churches and neighborhoods and communities across. I was like pouring it out, transform the spiritual landscape of the city of Orlando. I said, would you be willing, would you be willing to give to us over the first three years of the life of our church so that we could make this happen, so that we could make disciples who make disciples who plant churches? And and I just thought the, the room was going to shake and the Holy Spirit was going to convict him. And he looked across the table at me and said, Adam, I'm so excited about your vision. I said, that's great. How many zeros are you going to put behind that commitment? He said, I can't really give you any money because how would we fund the, the Sunday shuffle ball here at the old church? I said, he said, but I'll tell you, I'll tell you. And he's dead serious, how you can fund your church. I said, okay, well, I'm all ears because you're not giving me any money and I don't have any money. He said, find some former Presbyterians. I remember my grandma's Presbyterian. He says, they, I can't explain it, Adam. They just give. He said, the Presbyterian church down the road from us closed and we haven't had to worry about money ever since because they all came and they gave their tithe. I said, you can't invest any of that in us at East Side. But I, I was thinking like some of us grow up, no offense to Presbyterians, good on y'all. Um, but I thought about it. I thought, how, like, how sad like, how sad to think that we're going to have to go find a bunch of old Christians that were displaced because their church closed. I thought, what if we just got busy about leading people to experience immeasurably more? Leading people to experience Jesus for themselves. And when they experience the difference that God will make in, that God does make in their life, then they will give generously so that God will work through us so that he can lead other people to experience immeasurably more through us. And so we've prayed, and that's been the case, but the early church, like, they set the example. 
They grew up giving 10%, probably 10% to the penny. But when God moved, when God changed their life, they started looking around. What can we give? What can we sell? It shows us something. That where you put your treasure shows what you treasure. Like where you put your treasure, where you put the money that you've worked hard to earn and you've worked hard to earn and you've worked hard to save it, it reveals where your heart is. And this makes sense because we love to spend money on people and things we love. Now, oftentimes the people and things we love is ourselves. But when we find people and things that we love, we love to spend money on it. It's like, for, for example, like I'm not a big spender, but if I have something I love, I will go to no expense, stop laughing, Carissa, no expense to share it. I love spending money to share things I love with people I love. And I asked Carissa, I was like, that's why she's laughing. I, I said, so like, what are some things, Carissa, that um, if I want to share them with friends and family, people that I love, that I don't complain about spending money? And she says, everything you have. You got the new smoker, and you're constantly inviting people over. People that don't even like us, Adam, to smoke a meat just to show off how good your smoker is. Like, true. When you spend that much money, yeah. And she said, you, you built out a home gym in the garage, and you just keep inviting people over. Every time we come over, the garage door is open, and people, you're running a gym. It's like, that's true. Like, I love to spend money to share things I love with people I love. And it makes sense because Jesus said it this way in, in the Gospel of Luke, Luke's first edition of the story of Jesus, he says, fear not, little flock. This is Jesus speaking. For as your father's what? It's his good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Like God just gives us the kingdom. And it's, we love to give to things we love and people we love because we take after the father who loves us. Fear not, little flock. I mean, you don't be afraid about the things, the tomorrow, and the, the resources or lack thereof. For it is your father's good pleasure. Your father loves to give you good gifts. In fact, he gives you the kingdom. And then he says, you can sell your possessions and give to the needy. In fact, he, off, he just says, do it. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, but the treasure in the heavens that does not fail. For where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. He doesn't say for where your heart is, there your treasure will be. He says, where you invest your money, where you invest your treasure, that's what matters most to you. Where we invest our treasure reveals what we treasure. The early church accepted an incredible invitation into the kingdom of God. Peter preached, stood up and he preached the first gospel sermon. He made them feel worse than they've ever felt in their life. He was talking about Jesus. And he says, you remember Jesus. He was here in Jerusalem. You heard him teach. You watched him perform miracles. And then he looked at the Christ and said, like, and you nailed him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead. And now, because of his grace, he's inviting you into his presence to be his people. Come be part of the kingdom of God and watch God change your lives, your relationships, your marriage, your finances, your families. Watch God work through you. This is, it's real and you can experience it for yourself. They were invited into the kingdom and then they immediately began investing into the kingdom. And the early church was extravagant. It says they did not consider any of their possessions their own. But they looked around and they gave and they gave generously. What could they, what did they have stored away? What could they sell so the kingdom of God could go forth? Now, I want to be honest. This level of open-handed living did not continue all throughout the New Testament. And I'm not sure that it has to. Now, the way we view our time, our talents, our treasures, we'll talk more about that. But it didn't last forever. They knew that if the way they experienced God in their life was going to get off the ground and the church was going to begin to grow, that in that initial growth of the church, man, it was going to take an extreme amount of resources. And so they were extravagantly generous. They treasured 
the change that God had made in their life. And so they gave generously to make sure they were all in. Now, I grew up reading this story. I grew up in Sunday school, and every offering sermon, I feel like, which every other week in the church I grew up with, we never preach about money here, but every other week they would point to things like this, and they would try to kind of stir us to give. And I grew up with it, and I believed it, and I gave my 10% because that's what God says to do, but I very rarely gave more until one day, as you guys, many of you know our story, if you're joining us for the first time, we launched this church just a few years ago because my wife and I, we grew up in a church, we say we believed every word the preacher ever said, but we never felt like it made a difference in our life. And that was more on us than the preacher or the church that raised us. But when we started leaning in and hearing the things that God was calling us to do, we began taking action and following him and watching him perform one miracle after another to provide for us, to care for us, to work through us, we developed for the very first time a commitment to what I call open-handed living. And for the first time in my life, I looked at my time, my talents, and my treasures, and I realized, oh my goodness, these are not my own. These were given to me so the kingdom of God could go forth. And over the course of a year, through prayer and fasting, we decided that God was calling us to plant a church on the east side of Orlando with a mission and a vision to transform the spiritual landscape of the city of Orlando. I'd be happy to share more about that. But God had changed our life. It went from going through the motions, going to church week in and week out, even leading a church, going through the motions, teaching the book like it's a history book, to watching the word of God come to life. And all of a sudden, I was looking for opportunities to give. We decided where God was calling us to plant the church, and we looked around, and we didn't have much money, but we had saved some money that we were going to use to start a family, so we thought we can airmark that money to start a church on the east side of Orlando. And I had my prized possession a little flats boat, and I sold it to seed the church. And I never, I've never missed it. God has blessed us. He's provided for us. He ended up giving us a family through his miraculous provision. He's gathered a church family, and we've watched him transform the spiritual landscape of the city of Orlando one person, one life at a time. He's continued to work in us and through us. Here's, here's why I tell you that. Not to make much of us, but because we went all in when we experienced God for ourselves. I grew up in church. Carissa grew up in church. We gave, but man, we became generous when we experience the goodness and the great grace of God. Have you experienced the great grace of God? Where we invest our treasure shows what we treasure. At the same time, it shows where we place our trust. I am nervous about finances all the time. But when I realized that I could trust God, that he owns the cattle on a thousand hills, as he says it in the Old Testament way, meaning all the resources in this world are his. I begin to give, and I begin to give generously. We give our, our first fruits to God as the first uh, gift we give every month, and then we give and we give generously. We open our home, we invite people in, we smoke them a lot of meat, we invite them to work out to make disciples alongside them. But we give all that we have, all that we can, so that we can watch the kingdom of God continue to grow. Now, can Carissa and I continue to be as extravagantly generous as we were at first? No, we would run out of money. We've got a daughter to take care of now. We've got a, bill, a house to pay for. But, man, we go above and beyond, not because we have to, but because we want to. And we watch what little bit of treasure we can invest in the kingdom transform lives in the people we call our best friends and family, our church family. And so, The kingdom of God was going forth because the people of God were giving generously. And that sounds too good to be true, doesn't it? Like we read this story. Like I remember I told you, like I grew up with this story. It just sounds like, man, this sounds just too good to be true. Did people really live like this? Did they really give like this? I think Luke knew because Luke was a physician. He was very logical, very uh, orderly. He knew, man, people aren't going to believe this. Not just 2,000 years later. They're not going to believe this. 20 minutes from now. And so he cites a specific example. Here what he says. He says, thus Joseph, 
who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, parentheses, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him, brought the money, and laid it at the apostles' feet. And I love this because, again, we read it like a history book. And in this portion, Luke means it to be a history book because he gives you a name. He gives you a nickname. He gives you a location. He gives you a tribe he comes from. And he says, if you have any doubt about how generous the church was in the first century, just look at Joseph. If you can't find Joseph, ask for Barnabas because some of his buddies, his closest friends, call him Barnabas. And if you can't find Barnabas, Barnabas, just ask, if they're asked which one, say the Levite from Cyprus, and then ask him what he gave. And he's going to say, I gave you a field. Here's the thing. He didn't give it for public praise, but people knew that when God changed their lives, they began to become generous, and they celebrated it. They didn't make much of Barnabas. They made much of God. They made much of God. And Luke lays out for us very clearly that there were everyday people giving every resource they could so that other people could experience the goodness and the grace of God for themselves. And I tell you all, this is so humbling because I've watched this story come to life in the small church gathered on the east side of Orlando. I've seen you guys give. I've seen you guys give generously. I say every time, this church is powered by the Holy Spirit, but it is fueled and funded by the generosity of the people whose lives are changed through his presence. You guys are so much like Barnabas. You're giving and you're giving generously so that this can happen. Then chapter 5. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, man, we're 21 minutes into this, and Adam already finished the chapter. But this is where chapter divisions in the Bible don't always serve us well. Because you know that when Luke was writing this, he didn't sit down and write a story. In every sentence or so, write a little verse number. Then he got to enough verses, he wrote a big number and divided it into chapters. When Luke just sat down and he wrote this, and he just wrote the story of the kingdom of God going forth through the, the growth of the local church. And I don't think, a lot of the, the chapter divisions are helpful because if not, I would say, hey, turn about this way far into your Bible, you'd never find it by the time I was done preaching. But here, this chapter division seems out of place because here how chapter 5 starts. So we've seen the growth and the generosity of the church. Chapter 5 says, but, okay, you don't start a sentence, you certainly don't start a chapter with but. And a but is never good, is it? Like, the church is going forth, but, but a man named Ananias with his wife, Sapphira, sold a piece of property. Okay, seems a lot like what Barnabas just did. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds, and he brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart? Why has Satan filled your heart? Let that sink in for a moment. To lie to the Holy Spirit, to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land. While it remained unsold, meaning before you sold it, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and he breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard it. The young men, the interns in the church, they rose, they wrapped them up, and they carried him out. And they buried him. So everything... So far, the book of Acts was up and to the right. Holy Spirit poured out, Spirit of God going forth, every day people being out of their number, 15, 20, 30,000 people call Jesus their Lord and Savior. They're unified in purpose and in mission, one heart, one soul, one mind. They're giving, they're giving generously so that people can see the extravagant generosity of God through the generosity of his people. And then all of a sudden, we get to this part in Acts chapter 5, and someone just drops dead before the apostle Peter. 
You know, we always tell stories about, like, when you get to heaven, you're at the pearly gates, and, like, you stand before Peter. Those stories never made me nervous. That's not true, by the way. It's not how it's going to work. But nonetheless, those stories never made me nervous until I read this, because I don't think I want to stand before Peter. The Ananias, he sells a field. He brings some of the money. He lays it at Peter's feet. Peter questions him about it. And next thing you know, he's dead, and he's being carried out by the young men of the church. So it begs the question, like, why? First of all, what and why? Like, what is going on, and why did Luke feel the need to include this story? Like, couldn't he have just, like, he skipped a lot of things. The whole story of the church isn't in the book of Acts. Like, is this not a story he could have skipped? The truth is, stories like this give me profound confidence that what we read in Scripture is true. Because if I were making this up, if I were writing a story, a fictional story to make much of Jesus, I would not include speed bumps like this. But Luke says this is included because this took place, because this is how seriously God takes sin. Sin? Like, what is the sin? Ananias sold a field. He didn't have to do that. Even Peter says, like, it remained unsold. It was your own field. You could do with it whatever you want. After it sold, was it not at your disposal? Was the money that you made not your own? You could have done whatever you want. What is the sin? He says, why have you contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. Here's the thing, when, when it says in, chapter, in verse 2 that he kept back for himself, there's no problem keeping some of the money. We're not called to give 100% of the things that God has given us back to him. But when it says he kept back, literally translated would be the word embezzled or set aside secretly. So what Ananias was doing, Ananias was trying to give the, give the impression that he was giving all he had to God. He was telling people that he was giving everything he had to God while secretly he was keeping back for some for himself. I think, based on the context, that Ananias saw the public praise and recognition that Barnabas received, and he wanted the celebration without the sacrifice. So instead, his sin was to lie to the Holy Spirit. He wanted to be celebrated by God and selfish at the same time. He wanted to be celebrated in the, in the eyes of everybody around him and still take care of himself. He wanted to show he was going all in with God while holding back from God. And so what did he do? He lied to God, which, let's just be honest, that is stupid. Like, if God is who God, like, if you don't believe who God is, you say whatever you want to him. But um, if God is who he says he is, trying to lie to him is stupid. My daughter is three years old. She's the most perfect little girl, and, uh, but she is trying to learn like right and wrong. And one of the things she's learning right now, like as in this week, I don't know what happened at three years old, like she's learning if, or, if she can lie or not. And so the other day we were uh, walking through the house and I asked her to pick all of her stuff up and she took her baby doll, which she loves, and she just like threw it against the floor. And I was like, it's no big deal. But I said, Brighton, did you throw your baby doll? And she looked at me. Like she's learning right and wrong. And she looked at me and you could see her like processing, like am I gonna tell them the truth? I'm not gonna, like, and she said, no. And I said, I just watched you. No, I didn't. Like, who are you fooling? And I say that because it's seemingly innocent. We had a 30-minute conversation about lying and telling the truth, and she'll promise she'll never do it again. If she does, her mother will have to spank her. But, um, but I saw that, and I thought, man, we do the same thing to God so often. Did you do this? Like, you can throw your baby. It's not necessarily wrong to throw your baby, but tell me the truth. And so often we look to God and we say the same thing. Man, I want to be celebrated, and so I'm going to lie about my sin thinking I'm going to pull a fast one on God. This is the nature of sin. Satan is selling you a lie that you can go through all the motions and be celebrated by God at a surface, all the motions at a surface level be celebrated by God while holding on to selfishness. 
we're, this ultimately isn't really a message on money. It started with that, and I kind of wish it was, because we could use some more resources to advance the mission. But this is really a, a, a message on what we treasure and where we place our trust. Money is just an indicator of it. Jesus gathered a group of people in, in John chapter 8. If you want to turn there, you can, but the words will be on the screen if you don't want to flip back. John chapter 8, Jesus was performing miracles, and one thing led to the next. And in, in, uh, after he performed some miracles and gathered a crowd, he said to them, he said, in John chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. And he was so often using these illustrations to describe who he was. He says, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. That sounds good, right? But the Pharisees, the religious leaders, those who had grown up in a traditional religion, they didn't want that because when light is shown on something, it begins to expose things. And Jesus wasn't coming to create a religion that was full of people going through the motions. He was coming to restore a relationship with our Heavenly Father. And you know and I know that a relationship with someone on this earth and certainly with Jesus requires that we go all in, that we're fully open, fully transparent, fully honest, because we trust that the person we're in a relationship with wants best for us. And so Jesus and the, and the, the religious leaders, these people that are too smart for their, their own good, they get into this back and forth about who Jesus is and what he's claiming and what their understanding is. And finally, Jesus cuts to the heart of it. In John chapter 8, verse 44, he says to them, it's harsh, but it's true. He says, you are of your father, the devil. Well, that sounds pretty harsh, doesn't it? Well, Jesus didn't lead with this. He was trying to invite them into a relationship, and they threatened to kill him. So it seems kind of fair. You have your father, the devil. And then he says, your will, your desire, is to do your father's desire. This verse for the last two weeks, I don't know what it is. The Lord has brought this to my mind, has just convicted me day in and day out. It's one of the first things I think about when I wake up in the morning. It's one of the last things I think about when I go to bed. You have your father, the devil. Your will is to do your father's desire. Now, my father is God, but I wonder do I still want to do things that, God, or that Satan wants me to do? Like, are there still sinful, selfish parts of my heart? And certainly there are. And I'm asking the Lord every day, Lord, please bring to light those areas of my life where I'm, I'm uh, so uh, hardened of heart or blind to my own sin that what I really want isn't what I say that I want. What I really want is to do what feels good. Because that's what Ananias wanted. He wanted to do what he wanted to do, not what God had called him to do. So much so that he lied to God. He didn't have to. Jesus goes on, you have your father, the devil, your will is to do your father's desire. He, meaning the, the devil, like this is how silly it is to be on his side. He was a murderer from the beginning and he does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Do you remember in the very beginning in Genesis, he lied to Eve and then Cain uh, killed Abel because of the selfishness and sin that Satan put in his heart? When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he's a liar, the father of lies. The question we have to ask ourselves is, are we believing the lies of the enemy? Are we thinking that we can be celebrated by God while holding on to sin and lying to the Holy Spirit? And this, like I said, this isn't just really a message on money. Money is morally neutral. It is neither good nor bad. It serves us, but it serves as an incredible indicator about where our heart is. What do you do with your money reveals what you treasure. Where you invest your treasure shows us what we treasure and where we place our trust. And it's not just money, it could be time. Where do we invest our time? Where does the bulk of our time go? Does it go to a, building a career? Are we treasuring our career more than anything else? Is it even our family? Does it go to our family more than anything else, more than spending time with God? We talk about our energy, our attention, our affection. All of these things, they're morally neutral, but they serve as indicators about what we treasure and where we place our trust. 
the question we ask is, what do we really want? Do we want what God wants? Or are we willing to settle for what Satan is offering? Because Satan is, off, Satan is selling sin. And sin is fun in the short term. Short term gain. Sinful relationships are fun relationships for a few minutes. They lead to long-term pain that can affect generations. Sinful investment of our resources can be short-term gain, short-term pleasure, but they can lead to lifelong being behind the eight ball for the rest of our life. And on and on and on. What do you really want? Be honest with yourself, because the consequences are really life and death. I want to read the rest of this story, and we're going to pull it all together. Verse 7. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in not knowing what had happened. Sapphira really trusted Ananias. She gave him three hours. Like, I mean, guys can get distracted, but three hours to drop to go to the bank, it's a lot of time. Uh, and Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed to test the spirit of the Lord? You see how Peter gave her an opportunity to repent before he confronted her? Behold, uh, the spirit of the Lord, behold, the feet of those who buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Now, there's so much application in this. The first thing I want to say is this, that your sin and my sin doesn't just affect you and me. Our sin hurts us, it separates us from God, but it hurts those closest to us. I know our college girls roll their eyes every time they hear me say something like, don't lower your standard, lengthen your patience. But do you think Sapphira maybe regretted for a millisecond before she hit the floor that she married a liar like Ananias? Someone that was willing to go through the motions, to sell his possessions, to make it look like he was faithful to God? Well, his heart was selfish and sinful. Be careful who you yoke your life to. But also think about who could be affected by your sin. Your spouse, your friends, those in your community group that you said you're being open and honest with, your family, your kids who are watching. You say you're committed to Jesus, but you're not walking in consistency with him. You're not experiencing him. Your church, your family, the people at work that see Jesus on your social media, but they see you being deceptive at work. Sin can destroy a community. The question I wrestle with every time I read this story is, why was the punishment so harsh for Ananias and Sapphira? Because Ananias and Sapphira had witnessed and benefited from the great grace that was upon them all. They saw the wonders. They could have been there at Pentecost Sunday. They could have seen Jesus raised from the dead. We don't know. But they forsook it. And they were the first example of people disrupting the unity and the purpose of the work of the church. And so God took them out so the community could go on without disruption. What is the greatest complaints leverage against the church today that the church is full of hypocrites right the church could not survive corruption from the inside and so jesus had ananias and so, so god had killed ananias and sapphira now we don't know what happened for their eternity right like we don't know god's grace is more marvelous than we wrap our mind around but we do know this that god's punishment for sin is severe god's grace in christ is more marvelous than we can wrap our mind around. We'll come back to that in just a second. Community was affected by sin. Here's the thing I found this week. If community is affected by our sin, community can also help us overcome sin. The question is, what do we want? Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12, the writer of Hebrews says, Take care, brothers, 
meaning those who've already put their faith in Jesus, men and women who are following him, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. And so what he's saying is, is that the church can put their faith in Jesus and still choose to walk away if they want to. He says, so take care. Ask God day in and day out. Are there parts of me that would rather do Satan's desires than my, my heavenly father's desires? And then he says this, but exhort one another every day as long as it is called today, meaning every day that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold fast to our original confidence firm to the end. The deceitfulness of sin is what caught my attention. Sin sells us one thing and it gives us something else. Ananias and Sapphira thought, man, Barnabas went down in the history books. Luke's, Luke's over there in the corner. It's not actually how it happened, but I imagine like Luke over there in the corner just kind of watching everything that's taking place. Barnabas gave generous money to the church. And Ananias and Sapphira's like, man, I want to be included in that story. And so they're like, yeah, we'll sell a field and we'll give a portion. We'll tell everybody we sold it all. So like when they write the history books, like we look like heroes. They went down in history books nonetheless, right? There's a deceitfulness to sin. Yeah, they, last, they left the lasting legacy, but I'm sure it's not the legacy they longed for. God deals with sin severely. In fact, our sin can separate us from God for eternity. It can leave us in hell without any goodness or grace, any of God's provision. If you're joining us for the first time today and think all the church talks about is money, we don't. Maybe we should, but we don't. But here's what I want to show you. If I can give you one simple indicator about how, what, your treasure, where, what you treasure and where you place your trust, I should do that. Because here's the thing. God treasured us so much that he gave his only son. We will never match God's generosity. John chapter 3, verse 16, the most famous verse in all of scripture, for God so loved the world. You are part of the world. I am part of the world that he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him should not perish in this life or the next, but have eternal life. Meaning spiritually, we will never die because that separation that sin has caused, it is no more when we put our faith in Jesus. The, the shame, the guilt, the sin, and all of that is covered in the blood of Jesus. God treasured us so much that he gave us his only son. And God trusted us so much, he left us with the message to share with the world around us. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 8 through 11, this grace was given preach to the Gentiles, meaning those who are far from God, the unsearchable riches of Christ. I feel like this is my story every week. I stand up here, I want to teach you something that I can't even wrap my own, my own mind around. This is unsearchable, the riches of God's grace in Christ, and to bring to light for everyone, to make it clear what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church, the growth and expansion of the local church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. God loves us so much. He tre treasured us so much that he gave his son to take away our sin. And he trusted us so much that he left that message in our hands. That's why we're here week in and week out. That's why when we leave here, the work of the church is the church at work. We gather here to remind ourselves of the goodness and the glory of God and we go forth to proclaim his excellencies to those that we are raising in our home or meeting at work or sitting by in school. There's a reason we give so generously because God loves us so much. He 
gave us a son. He trusted us so much. He's left that message in our hands. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for the manifold wisdom of God, the mystery made clear to us. And Father, as we gather week in and week out, as we sit under the authority of your word on Monday morning and Tuesday morning and Wednesday morning, our prayer times, Lord, you're beginning to take away the fog that we might understand more every day who you are and what you have accomplished for us. Father, the question I ask that you would cause all of us to wrestle with as we leave here today is do we really want what you want? Or are we willing to settle for being celebrated by the world while lying to the Holy Spirit? Father, all of us are in the process of what we call sanctification. All of us are being shaped and molded by the working of the Holy Spirit, cutting away sin. So Father, as we're gathered here today, I pray that we give and we give generously. But more than anything, I pray that as we experience you for ourselves, you'd bring to light those areas of our heart where we're deceiving not even those around us, but ourselves. Show us, Father, as your people, holy and blameless in Christ, where where are we clinging to sin? Give us the courage and conviction to go to war with sin through the power of your Holy Spirit so that we might win. And Father, as you work that out in us, we ask that you would work through us. Let us treasure you above all else and let us put our trust in you. Let us give and let us give generously, not just of our finances, but of our time, our energy, of our affection. Let us be a people that have experienced you for ourselves, and we'll we'll stop at no cost, hold nothing back so that others can experience you through us. It's in your son Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing.